and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jasmine Harris, Acting Professor of Law at the University of California Davis School of Law. We will discuss her article, The Aesthetics of Disability, which was published in the Columbia Law Review. So welcome to the show, Jasmine. Thank you, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, the pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. I thought this was a really, really interesting paper and talked about disability law in a way that I hadn't thought about before. Uh, but as I read it, it made kind of intuitive sense and uh, it really kind of was an important kind of shift of perspectives for me. Um Thank you. That was the goal. So I'm so glad that it actually it, it works in that sense. It, it was really to challenge some of our thinking about this area of law. So yes, thank you for that feedback. Well, so I thought maybe we could start by just talking about what disability law is and how it works. So what's the legal basis for preventing uh, discrimination uh, against people with disabilities, and kind of when and how does disability law prohibit discrimination? So disability law or disability rights law is a rather or among the civil rights anti-discrimination laws is the youngest of them. In fact, 2020 is going to be the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is and has been described as the Civil Rights Act for People with Disabilities. And it was promulgated in 1990 by Congress, predating 1990, where disability rights came from. If we start, we're going to start in 19, in the mid-1970s with some of the activism of disability rights advocates like Judith Human and others who were organizing on the ground for disability rights and pushing for legislation. We didn't see integration become a principle in disability rights until the mid-1970s in the education context. And so this is a relatively new area of law. So when I refer to disability law, what I am talking about primarily is the Americans with Disabilities Act and its precursors, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, primarily Section 504, which is the federal law that prevents discrimination in federal programs and services. Mm, mm. So, so how is disability law supposed to work, right? I mean, like what's sort of the prevailing theory of what it's supposed to do and what kinds of consequences it's supposed to produce? Okay, so I'm going to separate my answer into two parts. The first is with respect to education. So disability rights law in the education context, most people have heard of or at least know the acronym, the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And that requires that children with disabilities whose disabilities prevent them from accessing what's known as a FAPE, a free, appropriate public education, that those children be given accommodations so that they can access that education properly. And, and so that is the way the education law works in the sense that, in other words, you, if you have a child with a disability, the parent will go to the school and say, my child has dyslexia. My child cannot access the education 
without these support services in place. Then they go through an evaluation process and the school determines how dyslexia affects that child's ability to learn and then provides them with the supports that they need in order to access the education. Now, that's separate from, as I mentioned previously, the Americans with Disabilities Act, where the Americans with Disabilities Act operates a lot like the Civil Rights Act that we know and love. And it has three major titles to it. The first is it prevents discrimination in employment. And that is, let me talk about employment. It prevents employers from discriminating on the basis of disability, that is making assumptions about disability in the workplace. And so one of the major provisions of the ADA has to do with reasonable accommodations. And the idea was Congress said, you know, we, we've heard from a number of people who've testified during the legislative uh, um, comment period. And we've heard that if only they had a particular accommodation, they could be in the workforce as opposed to receiving disability benefits or public welfare roles. And so the idea behind the ADA Title I in the employment sector was really to give people with disabilities the accommodations that were necessary in order for them to have an equal opportunity to employment. And then Titles II and Three really have to do with Title II is about public services and programs, and Title III is public accommodations. So the idea is removing physical and programmatic barriers to accessing or to equal access. One thing that I was sort of surprised to learn, although it made perfect sense after I read your paper, <laughs> was that, I mean, in, 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 in a way, it seems like, you know, I conceptualize disability law previously as providing sort of a remedy for people who've been improperly, unfairly discriminated against on the basis of disability. And that seems like one kind of purpose of disability law. But but it seems like, based on the way you talk about it, that there's sort of a bigger purpose as well, namely to sort of like prevent people from discriminating in the future. How is how is that aspect of disability law sort of conceptualized and supposed to work? So that's one of the novel ideas with the Americans with Disabilities Act. It is the only civil rights legislation who which has as one of its explicit goals the mitigation and ultimate elimination of stigma. Because in the disability context, one of the main barriers to accessing public services and programs, employment, is stigma, stereotypical depictions of what or understanding of what disability is. And so you think about the placard, the disability placard. When people think about disability, they think about the quintessential wheelchair user. Well. The wheelchair user is also depicted historically as being dependent, as being deficient. And so what Congress was doing was saying, look, we will remedy discrimination when it takes place in these spaces, public programs, employment, uh, public accommodations. But there's also, as you mentioned, rightfully so, a preventative aspect to this, which is to say, if you provide reasonable accommodations in employment, 
you can increase the number of people in the workforce. And the theory was that by doing that, over time, discrimination would be reduced because of the contact theory. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what is the the contact theory? How is it supposed to work? And does it seem to sort of play out as planned in practice? So contact theory comes out of social science and social psychology. A scholar named Gordon Alport in the 1950s basically theorized that the way to reduce prejudice, bias, and discrimination was to put different people together. So in other words, we were a very segregated society in the 1950s, and the way to reduce prejudice was integration. And so it's a reasonable theory, and it in fact informed much of the litigation around the Brown versus Board of Education and the subsequent educational reform work that was done. And so contact theory, from its onset, what I want to emphasize is that it was a hypothesis. You know, that it was a, a hypothesis by a scholar thinking through the social science of prejudice and bias and stereotypes and thinking about how to reduce discrimination. But it was incorporated into law as a theory, as something that was proven that didn't require any additional conditions precedent. And so the way in which law understood contact theory became a little distorted. And so over time, what you found was the the focus became integration as the remedy, as opposed to integration as a means to a more inclusive society. So is this contact theory then something that was sort of explicit or maybe even just implicit in other forms of anti-discrimination law? Uh, And, you know, to what extent has it, are there any signs of it being successful in some areas? And to what extent has it been successful in the disability context? Or, Or is there reason to believe that maybe it's not been very successful in a disability context? And, and if so, sort of what would differentiate anti-discrimination laws in a disability context from those in in other contexts? So it's a great question. In other contexts, some of the recent meta-studies that have been done show that contact has had some success in reducing discrimination and prejudice in particular areas. For example, in the LGBT context, that has been, contact has shown to be quite successful. That is to say, uh, when people came out of the closet, they were already sharing spaces with other people who then recognized this aspect of their identity. It was less successful relative to LGBT in the race context. Why? Because perhaps race is an external factor that someone notices. You cannot uh, be in the closet unless you're, in terms of our norms of race, in terms of perhaps light, lighter skinned. But it's something that is visible and noticeable from the start. So it guides those relationships. Contact in the disability context, the meta studies have shown, has been the least successful and of the different types of anti-discrimination efforts. And the reason that uh, scholars posit why this may be the case, and the reason that I give my descriptive claim in the paper is that we haven't really thought through 
the aesthetic components of disability bias. That is the way in which the sounds, the smells, the, the behaviors affect us in a way that triggers disgust in other um, what appears to be visceral responses to disability. It could be because we have this vision of, of uh, the, an existential anxiety that's prompted by it. That is to say, we see our own death, we see our own weaknesses and our vulnerabilities, which in a society that's built around independence, it's, it's really difficult to come into terms with the physical markers of disability. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about these aesthetic issues and how they impact the ability of an integrative policy to be effective. I mean, in other words, like sort of why and how does theory sort of collide with reality so, so much in in a disability context in relation to these aesthetic issues that you describe? So I think I will start with reaching back into the race context for a moment, because I think it, it has a really, uh, really great image and, and picture of how aesthetics plays out. So after, after the, um, after the, after the slavery efforts, the anti-slavery efforts were successful and historically, people were more integrated. And even in the Jim Crow South, you had people integrating more in different spaces, sharing spaces. Well, the folks who were abolitionists in the South would get together with the folks who were Black activists in the South trying to push against slavery. And, uh, and they would have, particularly in the religious community, they, they would share uh, various days of service. So they would spend a Sunday afternoon having brunch. And there's a story about two pastors, one African-American and one white uh, Anglo-American. And they had this brunch one day and their wives were all there and the families came together. And you have this progressive group, right? They're working together for policy change, for legal change. And so they're ideologically aligned. But when they sit down to have lunch, one of the wives of the main pastor gets physically ill and she has to excuse herself from this brunch. And so she writes, and this is from her perspective, she writes how this was incredibly embarrassing and so confusing to her because ideologically she was on the same page, she was for these issues, but that something harkened back to those just pure racist days that the education, the the environment, that all of the messages that she's absorbed were physically experienced by her in that moment. And so when you think about the aesthetics of disability in particular, I'm talking about those physical attributes that society has coded as being indicative of disability and difference. That is, you know, if you see someone who's drooling or someone who has a limp or a wheelchair user, assistive technology and devices, these are things that trigger disability in our minds. And then we have an effective bodily response to it. Now, the problem with this is that historically we've thought of this as emotions is separate from the cognitive 
ration, the rationality, right? So, so we thought reason and emotion were at odds. And we attributed these responses to emotion and that was seen as visceral and you couldn't control it. But in fact, the neuroscience behind this and the neuroscientists who are studying this have now shown that emotions are constructed. And it's a really radical idea. And it kind of blew my mind when I first heard that. Well, you know, that kind of blows up a lot of the law when you think about it that way. You think about tort law. <laughs> when we think about if emotions are constructed, then emotional distress damages or, or damages in general become a different, um, a whole different story. So in the disability context, what I mean by the aesthetics of disability mitigating someone's experience and mitigating rights is that when someone sees a person with a, with these markers, these aesthetics, the again, the cane, the white cane, the drooling, the behavioral atypicality, they are conditioned to have a particular response to that. And that has over time uh, really prevented people from interacting meaningfully with people with disabilities and from having dis people with disabilities access and exercise their rights. And so in that way, it's really mitigating the rights that are in existence. Mm, mm. Yeah. I mean, one thing that really struck me when I was reading your paper was sort of, you know, exactly how you do make these kinds of comparisons to other circumstances in a way that I think really illuminates how we still do kind of think about disability law differently without necessarily realizing it. I mean, I think that we've sort of, as a society, very um, intentionally rejected the normalization of emotions expressed on the basis of race and also the basis of sexual orientation. But in some ways, it seems like there's ways in which we still sort of permit or excuse or maybe just don't even see emotions that are normalized on the basis of ability. Absolutely, because somehow it's seen as, it's seen as more concrete. When people hear about disability, they say, well, that makes a difference, right? Unlike if you're a woman and you're thinking about gender or if you're Black or Latino, that doesn't affect performance. But disability, there's an actual disability there. And so those remnants and the inability to see that disability, there's a, an impairment, certainly. Someone has an impairment, but the way in which society is constructed and designed really affects that how that impairment, impairment is going to, for lack of a better word, impair that person's life, how it's going to affect their life. So if we had a society with ramps and you know, and elevators that were readily accessible, then being a wheelchair user no longer becomes a disability. And so there's a way in which people, though, cannot get to that point and see that disability, just like race and just like gender, just like sexual orientation, has this social construction uh, component to it. And so I think that is really the big barrier we're facing. Hmm. Well, maybe you could talk about like some specific examples where this normalization of the aesthetics of disability have 
both kind of frustrated the proper application of disability law and also harmed people with disabilities. I mean, how, how does this play out in practice? So let me give you a, a couple of examples that, that the paper talks about as well. So one example is in, and people don't really think about this as an aesthetic problem, but in the physical structure and design of spaces. And the way you've seen that I've seen this play out most recently is in a development in Chicago. There's a neighborhood that is has been designated a historical site. And so the buildings are are quite you know lovely and old and the facades are are perfect. And this family who has a daughter with a disability, she's a wheelchair user, they move into the neighborhood and they buy one of these historic homes, townhomes, and they set out to make it accessible so that their daughter can actually be independent, right? So assess accessibility, ramps, elevators, they don't, they shouldn't trigger pity on the part of people. They should see it as those are things that make people with with uh, who are wheelchair users independent. Well, this community lobbied to, and they're they're still fighting this, I believe, to reject the the homeowner's ability to perform the renovations on the basis that this is a historical uh, building and you can't change the construction. And in the interviews and in the exchanges and the debates going back and forth, the way in which this is described is this is ugly. The construction, the ramp outside, an elevator makes this building ugly. And this family should have known better than to move into this neighborhood if this is what they wanted to do with the house. And, and that is a, a real clear depiction of using um, aesthetic language, that is to say accessibility, the modes of accessibility for people with disabilities is seen as ugly mm. and changing what we understand as beauty. So contrary to, to beauty. And so uh, that that's one example. The other example you see in the context of employment is individuals who do not have these aesthetic markers. So in other words, you look at them and you may say, gosh, there are no visible cues that you are a person with a disability. And that person will go through the HR process as Title I of the ADA permits and requires and they will get an accommodation, a reasonable accommodation, let's say remote access or something else in the workplace, like a special chair or something. You know, you can fill in the blank depending on the disability. And the response of coworkers will be, gosh, but you don't look like a person with a disability. You must be gaming the system. And so the aesthetics become a benchmark by which we judge legitimate and illegitimate disabilities and access to accommodations and the civil rights that come along with the legislation. Yeah. I mean, that's really one of the things that really got me was the way in which it's sort of like we don't think about the extent to which disability is sort of almost like subconsciously or um 
you know, unspokenly associated with some sort of like aesthetic displeasure or even ugliness or something like in a sort of broad aesthetic sense. And like the examples you gave really drove home to me the way in which like the the townhome example, for example, like really the, the way that people sort of like almost unconsciously connect the two together. Right. Right. And, and that is the product of its history, the history of disability in society and how people with disabilities were historically separated and segregated from society, prevented from going to schools. There were the ugly laws that until 1974 in Chicago were still on the books that said, if you have any physical deformity or exhibit any disability, that you could be fined for being on the streets. It wasn't enforced in 1974, but it was still on the books. And so there was this relatively recent history that only now I think we we really need to start grappling with because it's preventing the effects of the remedial legislation from taking effect. Mm. So, I mean, as a policy matter, what can we do about this? I mean, are there ways that we can discourage people from acting on these kind of pernicious aesthetic judgments that cause them not to see the consequences that their decisions are having, the negative consequences that their decisions are having for people with disabilities? Are there ways that institutionally we can make institutions more sensitive to how these aesthetic judgments are affecting their decision-making and the way that they're implementing disability law? Absolutely. I think there are both legal and non-legal interventions that can be at play and can be helpful here. On the non-legal side, the issue of disability as diversity, which is it's actually, I'm writing a paper on this, the inclusion of disability in our notion of diversity is particularly important. You need to have people with disability in leadership positions. They need to be at the table. The, the saying in the disability rights movement was nothing about us without us. And that needs to really resonate with folks. Disability is part of any diversity movement. So, you know, greater representation, visual representation in films, leadership roles, the same conversations we've had and continue to have in the race context and in terms of other identity uh, features and traits. So, so that's the kind of non-legal intervention, social policy interventions that need to happen. On the legal front, I think we need to make use of this amazing provision in the Americans with Disabilities Act with respect to who is a person with a disability. And so uh, in terms of having standing under the Americans with Disabilities Act, you have to meet the definition of a person with a disability, which is defined in three ways. The first way is you're a person with an actual disability that substantially limits one or more major life activities. So a wheelchair user is substantially limited in his or her ability to walk. Uh, the second component is you have a history. So if you don't have a disability right now, do you have a history, a record of having a disability? So did you have cancer and now you are cancer free post chemo, but you're being discriminated against because people are treating you as if your cancer is still there? The third component is just for me, it's, it's fascinating. It's one of the most radical components of the ADA. 
which is you can be considered a person with a disability, that is, you can have standing to sue if you are regarded as a person with a disability. And so even if you have no disability whatsoever, you and it doesn't impair your functioning at all, if someone treats you as a person with a disability, i.e. if they see you that way, if they perceive you that way, then you may have standing under the Americans with Disabilities Act to sue in particular context. And so that last component, for me, that is the aesthetics remedy there. So I always think about the movie, Brian, I don't know if you've seen the movie Wonder. So in the, in the movie Wonder, which is actually based on the book by R.G. Palacio, the main character, Augie, has a facial disfigurement. And other than that, he has no disability. It doesn't impair him in any way. But he is treated as if he is a person with a disability. He's discriminated against in the school context on the basis of disability. And so I always think about Augie and, and when I think about the third prong, which is to say there are people who have physical differences, which we've labeled as, you know, normatively bad, right? They're on the list in my paper that they have these, but it doesn't affect their lives in any way other than the fact that other people see them as dependent, deficient, disgusting, all of those things based on that physical feature. And so I think in response to your question, we need to have, we need to make more arguments on the basis of the regarded as prong. Courts have been uh, unwilling to see this as a, as a powerful remedy. And I think litigators need to really push on that prong of the definition. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like from your paper that there were many circumstances in which courts sort of use the aesthetic priors that they came into circumstances with themselves as ways of sort of excusing the failure of institutions and individuals to reasonably accommodate disabilities that they were perfectly capable of accommodating, but didn't want to. Absolutely. And so the pretext arguments are particularly important in the disability context. And that really is something that we see across anti-discrimination law. And it's one of the limitations of anti-discrimination law. It's its ability to respond to implicit bias. Mm, mm. Well, so, so Jasmine, in, in closing, one thing that, that, that I was wondering if you could reflect on or talk about a little bit is that it, it, I, I can't help but agree with you that it seems like sort of aesthetic biases are having a really pernicious effect on our ability, both socially and legally, to grapple with um, the goals and our obligations with respect to disability law and people with disabilities. I, I wonder, are there ways for us to distinguish between areas and contexts where sort of aesthetic experiences should not enter into decision-making and areas in which aesthetic experiences are permissible or even something we should encourage? Like, how do we know when people are kind of using aesthetic judgments in a bad way as opposed to an acceptable way? I think that's why the ADA is so important, because the, the provision of reasonable accommodations 
And the idea that the individual has to start the interactive process and the request, this offers us a window to say, if the person and the individual says they can do the job, we need to take their word for it unless we have proof other, otherwise. And so there's a way in which, and this goes to a project I'm working on right now, in which we we fear, and, and I know you've had uh, Doran Dorfman on the show, and he's done some work on this fear of the disability con. And what I'm looking at is, you know, where does this come from? It really affects all of our policies. And so we have to think about why are we so uh, scared of people taking advantage of the, dis of the disability accommodation system? Like, so there's something inherent about, uh, about this. And so I think in response to your question, I think aesthetics are never appropriate in the employment context. I think without more, right? I wouldn't have a nuanced answer here. You can't just make that decision. And so in a way, those who have the aesthetics of disability or exhibit the, the aesthetics of disability would benefit from the voice like, and I put this in the paper, like, you know, the show, The Voice, where they all have their chairs turned around and they can just hear the voice of the individual. Or you see this in the orchestra context, right? Where you know, they, they hide the visible identity and features of the individual who's playing the music. Maybe if you exhibit these features, you need to go through a, uh, a blind audition process in some ways where you're hidden. And so once you have made it through that first hurdle, that's really when the ADA can kick in. And, you know, at that point you've shown I can do the job on paper. I am the person for this job. And then if there's any doubt or if you require a reasonable accommodation, then you get into that discussion process. But I think that's applicable across the board. It's the same with school. We, we, we shouldn't assume that just because someone's a wheelchair user that they're going to need a particular accommodation or that they cannot perform in an integrated classroom. So, so I think that I know I've kind of rambled at the end of it, but I think it's a really complicated question because aesthetics are socially constructed. And so part of the, the mission is to deconstruct them and show that the physical markers do not signal. They are not proxies for incapacity or deficit or dependency. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we have totally accepted the idea of blind auditions in so many other discrimination contexts. And it just had never occurred to me that there's no reason that the same sort of screen wouldn't provide similar kinds of benefits to, um, to equity and anti-discrimination goals in the disability context as well. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Jasmine, thank you so much for coming on the program. It was really a pleasure talking to you. And I encourage people to read your paper, which gets into all of these issues in so much more fantastic detail. Thank you, Brian. It was my pleasure.
rushing you down the hall. X-rays, baby, you for your sake to find out what makes you ache. Diagnoses are the things that they must make for the patient's life. May be at stake in surgery. The doctors are a And you're on your way to your dream Hear the ambulance Coming on a call You'll soon be rushing down the hall They'll do x-rays all for your sake They'll soon find out just what makes you ache Nurses all bringing on the pills, helping you cure your ills. Everyone's working hard, how to keep you on your guard. You receive flowers with the finest smell, and sincere wishes that you get well. And we just lie there, all we do is rest. But the doctors know that that's Nurses bringing you the pills. They will help you cure all your ills. Yes, everyone is working oh so hard. They will keep you always on your guard. Noon time comes and you get a dish. Hope you like meat or fish. And every nurse always smiles as she walks with me down the aisle. And as we eat, each and every meal, oh, how wonderful we start to feel. And when visitors come, they 